Now, the past couple of weeks, we've been encouraged to strengthen ourselves in our walk with Christ in a couple of different ways. We talked about how important it is for us to be part of the body of Christ. That's the church. How important it is that for us is that we are faithful participants in our church, our local church, um, and how important it is for us to be part of it, that we need to take our role in the body of Christ because it's only as we take our role in the body of Christ is that body functional. We all know that, right? We are. The, it's talked about in Scripture that we are the body of Christ as we have parts of our own body, our thumb and our knee and our elbows and so forth. If one of them is out of whack, it makes, makes the whole body uncomfortable, right? So if the body is to be functioning, then we need to have every part of the body functioning. Then we also talked about the necessity of prayer, praying as God has ordained that as the way that he communicates with us. God designed prayer specifically because he has something he wants to share with you. And the only way that he can share it with you is when we take the time to pray. Prayer is nothing more than conversation. I speak to God in the way I speak to God in my, in, in my tongue and I listen to him as he speaks to me back. It's a dialogue and that's what prayer is. And it's, um, it's designed to be a time of cooperative effort. In other words, as I take the time and effort to, to patiently and diligently pray, God is faithful in his answering if I give him the time to answer. Many times I think we rush in and out of prayer. We say our few things that we want to say to God, and then we say, God, got to go. And we hop in the car or whatever, we take off, and he's saying, wait, wait, I wanted to share something with you. Come on back. And uh, and we're already out the door. And sometimes a lot of prayer is just sitting and being, being quiet. And that's what I like about our Sunday night prayer time is that it's just an opportunity to come in and be quiet. Settle yourself before the busy week starts up again. Sometimes prayer can be just listening to his voice. And uh, that is really important. And today, then, I want to encourage us to pay attention so that we don't drift away from the truth that we already know. Um, and this may seem like somewhat of a strange message to be talking about because we all consider ourselves, and we are, I believe, mature Christians here for the most part. And I believe that we read the Bible and we understand what the Bible says and that we apply it. But yet, when I read Scripture, um, it repeatedly gives warnings for us to pay attention So if it says things like that, and since we're a Bible-believing church and a Bible-teaching church, we need to teach what the Bible says. So our text here is in Hebrews chapter 2. But before we get to that text, we need to understand what Hebrews chapter 1 is all about. I'm not going to read chapter 1. I would invite you to, but let me summarize it this way. Let me read the first few verses of it. But basically, the whole chapter of of chapter 1 is presenting the authenticity and the reality of who Christ is. Hebrews was written to the Jews, and they were struggling with the fact that the Messiah was Christ. They were expecting a whole different type of a mindset with the Messiah. They were not expecting Jesus to be who he was. So they really struggled, and they still are struggling today. Orthodox Jewish people struggle with the fact that the Messiah is Jesus. They believe the Messiah is going to come. 
yet it's not Christ. And so the, the Hebrews is written about that and written to those people. So Hebrews chapter 1 is describing to these people who Christ is and what his purpose for humanity is. So let me just read the first couple of verses of it. It says Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir, heir of all these things, and through him and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. So, and it goes on to quote Old Testament scriptures proving the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He's exactly who he claims to be, and, and he's greater than everything that he created. Jesus is the creator of the universe and the world. And so all of chapter 1 presents that. It's with this background, then, we can move into chapter 2, because now chapter 2 is starting to give us an instruction as how do we apply that. No, There was no instruction in how we apply any of this in chapter 1. That was just a proclamation of who Jesus was. So now the writer begins with a warning that he's addressing to the professing Christians of that day who were in the church. This writing is to the church, to Christian Jewish people. And he writes it in a way that I think is very interesting because he includes himself in the warning with the readers. And he faced the same temptation as they do. He was no different. He wasn't in an ivory tower put someplace off where he wasn't um, tempted to drift as they were. And, you know, that's the thing I like about when I read Scripture like this, I can I don't see anything preaching down or talking down to us when we read Scripture. Rather, it's encouraging us. It's coming alongside and lifting us up and, and encouraging us all to move down that journey of life that we're all on. Because we are journeying through the enemy territory right now. Do you know that? Yes, we're Christians. Yes, we are followers of Christ. But this is not Christ's world yet. It is still the world of the enemy. And we're, we're, in, on, we're in enemy territory, and he is very diligent, and he is very purposeful in his forms of delusion and deception for us. And so it's a struggle. We're redeemed by Christ but we are still in the battle of our lives, and we will be until we go home. And even more so, because I believe that we are truly living in the end of the end. When I look around and I see the prophecies that have been fulfilled, and I look around the world and I see everything happening in the world, I cannot help but understand and recognize the fact that we are in the end of the end, and Jesus is the next thing that's happening. His return is the next big thing that's happening, and I'm excited for it, and I'm looking forward to it. But at the same time, we have to recognize that we're in a battle. And that's why I believe this teaching is very applicable for us today. So our text is Hebrews chapter 2, the first four, first four verses. This is in a New Living Translation. And it says, So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. 
So what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore the great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word today, and I thank you, Lord, for what you've given And I thank you for your proclamation of who you are in chapter 1 and how we can believe that and have every confidence that it's actually true. And because of that, Lord, we have hope for tomorrow. And I pray that you would help us see this as we go through this teaching today, that we would cling to what's true and that we would not drift, but we would pursue it further and further. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see in this passage is that the writer is instructing us so that we must listen very carefully. We must listen very carefully to the truth. We have heard, or we may drift away from it. Let me read that again. Hebrews 2, 1 says, We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. From this passage, one is either drifting or growing in their salvation. One is either drifting or growing in their salvation. It's a choice that we make on a Daily effort. Am I growing or drifting? The reality is no one grows spiritually by accident. Our default is not growth. Our default is drifting. Let's just recognize the nature of our mankind. Let's recognize the nature of... of, this, This is not a criticism of anybody. It's not down talking to anybody. It's just the reality that our sinful nature is one that would drift away from God. Our human nature, based upon what happened in the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago, automatically takes us away from the presence of God. And the only thing that changes that is having a relationship with Jesus. And we have to intentionally be seeking that relationship with Christ. Otherwise our human nature will be one to drift. That's just the facts. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But first, the th- the, I want to talk about the great salvation that Christ, Christ offers. Number one, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, 3, it says, So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? It makes us think that we can escape the great salvation. What is this great salvation? This great salvation that we're talking about is the salvation that Christ offers that is indescribably great. When we recognize truly what salvation is, it is beyond our ability to truly understand what salvation really is. It's great for a few reasons. Number one, or A, if salvation is great, it's because... It is the only thing that every person needs more than anything else. We are all on common ground. 
We all need salvation. That's the one thing that everybody in this world needs more than anything else. Every person is in need of it. No one is exempt from it if they are to escape an eternity of hell. We must have salvation. That's what every person, that's the common denominator that every person has, no matter of your color, of your skin, your race, your nationality, where you live, where you were grown, where you were born, what country you live in. We all need Christ. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of the glorious God's of glorious God's glorious standard. Romans six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John three thirty six Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but who whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And we could go on and on and we could read scripture after scripture that would tell us how how this great salvation is important for all of us. And because it is the thing that changes us from dead men to living men and women. It's the grace of God that changes us from a man with no hope to a man with glorious hope. It's the only thing that satisfies us, as we sang earlier. It's the only thing that can give us peace and hope in the world that we live in. One evangelist said it this way, salvation is not simply... To be ch- so to change us from a negative to a positive self-image. In other words, it's not just about how I feel about myself. But he goes on to say, and he says, salvation does not mean that Jesus helps you fulfill your dreams here on earth. Salvation is not about Jesus improving your marriage or giving you peace and joy, even though he does. But that's not the point. Then he goes on to say, God's salvation is about Jesus rescuing from the wrath to come. And since every person is in imminent danger of facing that wrath, salvation is every person's greatest need. You know, I've heard it said that Jesus experienced the wrath of his Father. Think about that. Jesus experienced the wrath of his Father when he hung on the cross. That day, with all of mankind's sin on him, he experienced the wrath of his Father because of the sin of mankind. And so when Jesus comes to offer salvation, what is he really saving us from? Is he saving us from the devil? Is he saving us from ourselves? No, what he's saving us from is the wrath of his Father. Think about that. God hates sin. And God is a righteous, just God. And he has no choice other than to punish sin. And if we don't accept the forgiveness of Christ, then we are under God's wrath. So Jesus came and he accepted God's wrath for us. And so when he brings this great salvation to us, he's bringing it to us so that he can save us from having to face the wrath of his father because he already faced it. That's great news. That's great news. That's awesome. The fact that God will pour out his judgment and wrath on sin and I don't have to have my sin 
accounted for by me anymore because Christ already took care of it for me, that I accept Jesus as my Savior, He forgives me, and now I am, a, I am saved from the wrath of His Father. That is what makes salvation great. Salvation is great also because it came from multiple sources, but mainly it, it was spoken of first by Christ himself. Christ spoke of the importance of salvation. Hebrews 2.3, this great salvation was first announced, so Jesus gave everything, everything, so that we could have that salvation. That he, would, that he willingly left heaven and he came to us to give us the greatness of this gift that we call salvation. And this salvation was also confirmed by those that were eyewitnesses to Jesus' death. This is really important because salvation is only great if it's true. It's only great if it's true, right? For the fact that Jesus had 12 disciples that walked with him, saw him live and die and rose again, okay, and then they go on to preach about him. They confirm the fact that Jesus is truly the Savior of the world. That fact is it helps make it true not, not that we needed them to substantiate Christ's claim for himself but think about what these men did these men were common ordinary jewish men that had been living all their life up to this point in time under jewish old testament law and traditions jesus comes and he upsets the apple cart completely because he says now i have come to fulfill the old testament law And now those Old Testament laws, you don't have to live by anymore because I am the sacrifice, I am that Lamb of God, and I am the one, I bring salvation to all mankind. So now these men are upsetting all of their traditions of life. And not only are they upsetting their traditions, but their family's traditions and the religious leaders' traditions of the day. And you don't think they face persecution over that? You don't think they felt a little wrath of man over that? And yet, every one of those men, see, if it wasn't true, why would they have gone through what they went through? Why would they die for a lie? So they had to really believe what they saw in Jesus. They were eyewitness accounts of his life, of his death, of the miracles that he performed while he was alive that he rose from the dead, he walked with them, he ate with them for 40 days after he had died and rose again. And then he saw them, he saw, they saw him go to heaven. See, every one of, 11 of the 12 disciples, John the Revelator is the only one that we think died from a natural death. Every other one was martyred. If it was a lie, why would they allow themselves to be martyred? Would you die for a lie? No. Will you die for truth? I hope so. I hope we all will die for the truth. So these eyewitnesses held to the truth of of the gospel message and and everything that Jesus did. And even if it cost them their life, they were willing to die for it. Again, that helps substantiate the fact that Jesus truly was who he said he was. And that brings us to the second point. Because God's salvation is so great... The consequences of neglecting it are just as bad or worse. Because salvation is so great, the consequences are terrible if it's neglected. There was a booklet written by Campus Crusade titled, How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this booklet, the idea was given that there were three classes of people. The natural person, the spiritual person, and the carnal person. 
The natural person is someone who had not received Christ or a self-proclaimed sinner. (laughs) All right. The spiritual person is the person who has accepted Christ and is empowered now by the Holy Spirit living in them. You and I. And then the third person, the carnal person, is a person that is professing Christ, but yet is living their own life, irregardless of the rules and the regulations and the laws and the instructions of the Bible. Okay? They profess Christ, but yet they're living their life according to the world standards. And this book states there that it goes into through a lot more to this, but really the problem here of the carnal Christian is that it gives them a false assurance that says, I believe in Jesus, I've accepted him in my life, so I'm going to heaven, but I'm not submitting to, to God as my Lord. I, I, we often say that when someone gets saved that they are... That we are, um, Jesus is now his Lord and Savior. But I think we need to reverse those two words. He's our Savior, and then he becomes our Lord. Because Lord denotes ownership, right? And he can't become our Lord until he becomes our Savior. And so when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are then saved, meaning we are saved from the wrath of God, and we are now given entrance into eternal life, heaven, And now, because of that salvation, that great salvation, now I can make Jesus my Lord, which means now that I change my lifestyle accordingly. I don't change my lifestyle to get saved. I get saved, and then I change my lifestyle. Otherwise, it would be a lifestyle of works. And we're not saved by works, are we? We're saved by God's grace. And then because I'm saved with this great salvation, it changes my whole attitudes of life, it changes my perceptions, it changes what I think is important, and I pursue the things of God. And that then puts him, Jesus, at the Lord of my life. And that's what the carnal person is missing. Because the carnal person says, I accept Christ, but I'm really not making him Lord of my life. And that's a dangerous position to be. If you skip down a few few chapters in Revelation chapter 10 of Hebrews... Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, this is pretty direct. It says, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. That's a really strong verse. If we deliberately continue to sin... There is no longer any sacrifice that will cover those sins. See, the carnal Christian is one that deliberately chooses to live contrary to God's word. He knows better. He just doesn't care. The worldly culture is putting too much pressure on him. And so he sees so many other people doing things that are contrary to God's word, but yet they are seemingly doing fine. They're okay. And they continue to go down that path. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. The writer of Hebrews says that either a person is holding fast to their confession of Christ 
and are striving against sin, or they are drifting spiritually and are in great danger of frightening punishment and judgment. There are only two options. And I want to come back to the scripture one more time because, listen, guys, we all sin. Let me stop here for a minute. Even when I have accepted Christ, that does not make me a perfect man. Boy, I wish it did. My wife wishes it even more. (laughs) And since she's not here, I can talk about her. If she was here, I'd be in trouble. Don't tell her I said her name. I'll I'll edit that too. But the reality is, just because I accept Christ doesn't make me perfect. The, 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 the thing that the key word to this passage is deliberate. If we deliberately continue to sin, you see, we slip and we fall. And that takes us to the third point. Because despite the greatness of God's salvation, we are all in danger of drifting away from it. Despite the greatness of God's salvation, we're all in danger of drifting away from it. Now, a true believer, we may fall into sin. There's a difference between falling into sin and diving into sin. You see, let me go back. We've all run around swimming pools, right? How many people, how many times have you seen somebody slip and fall into a swimming pool? It's kind of funny. You know, they're, they're not paying attention. All of a sudden, they take a step, and there's no longer cement there. They stepped into the water. You don't walk in water. What do you, you fall? So they fall into the pool by accident. Now, they're all wet, but that's different than the guy walking up to the diving board and purposely diving headfirst into the pool. That's deliberate sin versus unintentional sin. We can fall into, we can slip and fall into sin on a daily basis, quite easily in fact, but as soon as I fall into sin and find the fact that I'm sinful, what do I need to do? I need to get myself out of the pool, get out of that sinful pool, out of that mess, get a towel, dry off, and get out of there. How do we do that? By asking Jesus to forgive us again. By asking him to forgive us again because I slipped. I didn't mean to, it wasn't intentional, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on it that I don't do that again. That's repenting as I go the other direction so that I don't purposely fall into that sin again. And, and so I go another direction, and that's what we're talking about here. That, that is something that we must guard our lives for, and live our lives for that, so we, we stay out of that intentional diving into sin, because that's deliberate. And that's a whole different manner. And I can, if I deliberately dive into sin like that on a regular basis, then I'm insulting the spirit of grace. The carnal Christian talks about loving Jesus, but loving the Lord, but loving the world more. They say they love Jesus, but yet by their actions, it's pretty obvious that they don't. And I'm not judging them. I'm just observing some actions. And that's not my job, by the way. It's the Holy Spirit's job, and he'll do a fine job when it comes time. My purpose is to try to help people, try to help them see what's going on, as it's your job as well to live your life around other people that would call them back. So what causes one to drift? What causes one to drift? Let's think about that. The cause of drifting, as defined in Hebrews, is really a simple thing called neglect. Usually drifting is inadvertent. No one sets out to drift, but it happens. 
if we're not careful, because that's our default situation. As we've already talked about, the default nature of humanity is not one that would draw themselves to God. It would be one that would pull themselves away from God. What happened in the Garden of Eden? After Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Where did they go? What did they, what did they do? They went and they clothed themselves with leaves because they recognized they were naked, and they hid themselves from God. Whereas before, they would walk up to God and look for God and seek Him out in the garden. But now when sin came in, they began to hide from God. And that is, but that is the human nature that we all face today. That's our default condition. So when we drift, it's inadvertent for the most part. So how do we not drift? It's like, it's, how many people have driven a boat? Yeah, okay. Now, put yourself in a channel. Out here on Lake, you know, going off from Lake Charlevoix out to the big lake. If you're steering a boat, you have to deliberately pay attention because the current might take you off course if you're not careful. Right? So you're constantly moving, adjusting the steering wheel a little bit bit because otherwise the current will take you over to the wall. Right? So you have to continually adjust your course. Otherwise the current will take you off course and put you into a situation that you don't want to be into. And that's a good description of how we need to adjust our life living in the world. Because living in this world that is not God's world, it's Satan's world right now, there is a strong current of immorality and a strong current of evil that we're navigating through as we're journeying through this life, correct? And so we have to constantly be adjusting our course so that we don't allow the, the current of evil to direct us into a path that we don't want to go or to a place we don't want to go. We have to fight the current of our culture. And it's a hard job sometimes to do that because we, it makes you feel like you're standing alone. Because everybody else in your job or in your environment that you work with on a weekly basis isn't fighting that current. They're going with the current. They're drifting along with it, and they're enjoying life, and they're having a good time, and, and you're doing your best to stay to stay correct your course so that you don't, are not pulled along the current with them. Listen, this is a very important part. It doesn't take an active rebellion or a defiance against God to miss heaven. It's a simple neglect. It's a simple neglect of this great salvation while you attend to other things in this busy life. We can simply get too busy. We can simply get distracted. We can simply let the life, the cares of this world overcome us and, and, and cause us to stop making course corrections if we're not careful. You know, we were studying Revelations before the before the first the end of the year, and we talked about that in hell, based upon Revelations chapter twenty one, and I'll read the verse in a minute, that there will be more good people in hell than bad people. Now let me define what I'm talking about. We define bad people as the vilest of the vile. The murderers, the rapists. You know, the guys that are, that have done really bad things. And yeah, we, we know they're going to be in hell. They deserve to be in hell, right? But in Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, it says this. It says that, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, 
the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Do you notice that the cowardly and the unbelieving top the list? The cowardly, they're the ones that are afraid to take a stand against the current of evil and popular opinion. The cowardly are the ones that are afraid to say, I love Jesus in front of your friends. The cowardly are the ones that won't take a stand for righteousness. The unbelieving are the ones that say, oh, I, I, I believe in God. I know he exists. But they've never really believed in Jesus as their Savior. That's why I think it's pretty obvious to say that there will be a lot of really good people in hell. People that are so good, they don't need Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know anybody like that? Are you one of them? Am I one of them? Boy, I hope not. But listen, this is what we're, this is what the scriptures say. This is why we need to guard ourselves because it doesn't take a conscious rebellion against God. It just takes a negligent attitude toward him. That causes us to drift away. And that's why Hebrews said at the very beginning that he was warning us that we listen carefully to the truth that you know so that you don't drift away. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the majority opinion doesn't mean it's right. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through that. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is God's word. He says, many will be on the wide road that leads to destruction. Who are the many? The drifters. The ones that just neglected the God's word. The cowardly, the unbelievers. My Bible commentary says it this way. He says, the word for drift away is the Greek word periario. And it produces the mental picture of a ship drifting past a safe harbor and continuing until it reaches a point where it wrecks. Neglect, carelessness, or apathy is spiritually fatal. Believers who, because of negligence, allow their devotion to the truth to slip are in great danger of being swept by the waves of life, past the safe harbor, and away from the place of godly security. So what's the antidote? The antidote to drifting is paying attention. The antidote to drifting is paying attention. To protect one's life from the danger of drifting, one needs to be diligent in pursuing a life of spiritual growth. Either You're either growing or you're drifting spiritually. A commentator said it this way, If you attend a church where God's great salvation message is proclaimed week to week, pay attention to the message. Don't tune it out and ignore it. Don't yawn and think, I wish the pastor would be more interesting. Pay attention to this great salvation. I'm glad I didn't write that. I'm just reading it. Jack, would you come, please? The message that I'm proclaiming is the greatest message of all time. How great is God's salvation? 
How great is God's salvation? What more do we need in this life than God's salvation? So what do we do? Well, we start with the basics. And some questions we need to ask ourselves. Are you giving deliberate effort in seeking God and His great salvation on a daily basis? These are your questions. Write these down, or maybe they're in your notes. How much time and effort are we, I'm going to change the word, are we giving and understanding and applying and sharing the gospel? Do you read, do we read scripture as if it's important to your soul's destination? Think about that. Do you see the Bible as vital to your life? Or do we allow scriptures to be optional? Do we read the Bible with an, with an appreciation of how important it is? to our eternal destination? Boy, that's a big question. Is spending time alone with God, studying and praying a priority in our schedule? Or do we just get too busy? Hmm. And here's the last thing. Do you cut out of your life anything that would divert you from such a great salvation? How easy is it for us to allow the cares of this world to slip in and overcome us? I know. Listen, guys, I'm speaking with you. I'm not speaking at you. I know exactly what this is. I know how it, I know how it feels. And I'm with you on all this. And for those that are listening online as well, I know that this is something that we all face. That's why the writer of Hebrews said it in a way that it included him as the writer. No man was outside of that. Even the disciples had to continue to keep their life Adjusted so they didn't drift away from the message of Jesus and they walked with him. We need to, we need to cherish this great salvation as the greatest gift ever given. And when I can cherish that salvation that way, it makes my life full. It makes my heart full. It doesn't want, I don't want to go out into the world and try to fa- find successes other places. I don't want to go out and try to find peace other places because there isn't any peace in this world. It doesn't offer it. We need to pay attention and we need to allow ourselves the privilege of coming to God's presence on a daily basis. It's a privilege to come into God's presence. It's a privilege to pray. It's a privilege that he's given us to communicate with us, that he wants to talk to you. It's amazing to think that God wants to talk to us. I mean, imagine that. The creator of the universe wants to talk to us. He knows your name. He knows your concerns. And he wants to speak to you. He's the great shepherd, and we know his voice. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name today. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have chosen us. You've chosen all men to come to relationship with you. I thank you, Lord, 
that we've listened. I thank you, Lord, that you've broken through our veil of our own sin. And God, I thank you that we've chosen back, that we've accepted you into our hearts and life. But God, I pray that you would protect us from the enemy because the enemy would have us drift. The the enemy would come in and cause us to question things. And Father, I pray that you would protect us from that. I pray that you protect us from the delusion and the deception of the enemy today. And I pray that we would choose you over and over, new and afresh, on a daily basis. And Lord, yes, we make mistakes. We fall. We slip. God, we're not perfect in our love, our living. But God, we can be perfect in our desires for you. We can be perfect in the fact that we, we come back and we repent. We ask for, for, for forgiveness regularly. At the first sign, the first sense of sin and how we might have failed you, that we feel that that conviction in our spirit. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are there to do that for us. That you bring conviction first and then you bring comfort later. That's your purpose. And we thank you for that. Now, Lord, if if we've made mistakes... Help us to be quick to come back and say we're sorry. So this morning as you're here, this and, and if you need help with that, you know I'm here to pray with you or maybe others sitting in this next to you in these seats would pray with you as well. Don't think you're alone in this because you're not. The enemy would want to isolate you to make you feel like you're alone, but you're not alone. God's grace is sufficient and he's with you. And he wants to protect you and he wants to keep you. Let's just accept him today. This great salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing the song that the worship team is playing. I need you more. More than yesterday. I need you more. More than words can say. Help us really, truly to understand that. That you are the only thing that we need to chase after. That we would really focus in on who you are. And as we do that, Lord, we would just find ourselves being drawn into your presence. And it would truly change us. 
Lord, I'm never beyond needing to be changed. I need to be ever increasing in the knowledge of God and in pursuit of your holiness. So God, don't ever let me think that I can be more, more, so mature in my Christian faith that I don't need to change. Lord, that's a, that's a trick of the enemy and that's a sign of drifting actually that I don't think I need to change anymore because I'm already there. Lord, if that's my attitude, then forgive me. Change me. Lord, pursue me. Purify me with the fire of your holiness. And Father, I just declare that I need you more today. I need you more tomorrow. I need to be ever growing in your presence. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day today. Pursue the Lord with all you have. You won't regret it.